Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While the Ontario government is looking to extend the province-wide stay-at-home order in the month of June, what do we need to do to get this thing going, and what do we need to do to get the restrictions lifted? The Canadian and Ontario Chambers of Commerce are collaborating with the Canadian government to launch COVID-19 rapid screening initiatives. This is going to help small businesses as we try to get that reopening going. And the military report done in long-term care has revealed that dozens of residents in two Ontario's nursing homes died not from COVID-19, but from dehydration and neglect. It's not only troubling, but potentially criminal. Get into that as well. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. What's on everybody's minds is uh, lockdown here in the province of Ontario. And uh, as we mentioned to you yesterday, uh, the 20th of this month, May 20th, is actually the date when the lockdown was supposed to end. But I wouldn't bet on that right now. There seems to be more and more indications uh, from Queen's Park that they're probably going to extend this. The, the rumor we're hearing is probably at least through to the first week of June. And uh, that's got some people frustrated and other people scratching their heads. Global's Dave Woodard has a report for us. Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health applauded the distance we've come in the last few weeks but says it's not enough to reopen the province. So what kind of numbers is he hoping to see before that happens? I haven't got a definite metric right now. It certainly will be well below 1,000, uh, but I think that is achievable. Achievable because we have something that we didn't have before. As compared to the first and second wave, um, the big thing we have is vaccination. He says that we need to stay the course on the stay-at-home order and to keep getting people vaccinated in order to get below 1,000 cases a day and stay there. Dave Woodard, Global News. So is that going to do the trick for us, or is this a June 2nd extension, if that's what it's going to be, uh, just an extension that's going to get another extension? I mean, those those are pretty lofty goals to try to get down under 1,000 from where we are right now. I want to bring uh, Chris Bach into the conversation. Chris is a research chair of the Department of Applied Mathematics and a specialist in mathematical and computer modeling of infectious disease outbreaks at the University of Waterloo. Chris, I hope you're doing well. Thanks for joining us again today. I'm, I'm doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, the comment there that Dr. Williams just made, I'm sure you've heard this over the little while, that you know, the, the big weapon we have right now is vaccinations. I, I, I'm, I'm juxtaposing that with what we're hearing from the, the science table that basically said you can't vaccinate your way out of this. There's going to have to be more done. What, what, what's your read on that? Right. So um, I, I think the science table meant that you can't rely just on vaccination and, and just at this point. And that's because, you know, the vaccine, uh, it's great at preventing disease. It stops people from, from, from getting very sick. Uh, but in terms of blocking transmission, it, it's somewhat less effective. I mean, it still helps, um, but it's not like 95% effective like it is against disease. Um, and also the cases are, 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 are so high right now that, and our ICUs are so full that we can't just uh, uh, you know, rely entirely on the vaccine at this point. We still need measures uh, like social distancing and masks to um, to get those case numbers down and, and make sure the ICUs um, don't even get even busier than they already are. So with that in mind, uh, it, does it make sense to you then that this would have to be extended? I mean, May 10th is coming, or May 20th rather, is, is coming up pretty quickly, and we're not where we need to be according to the, just about everybody who's doing the analysis here. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Um and uh, if, you know, for example, if you extrapolate on the recent trend, I mean, cases have been going down in a line since April. And if you extrapolate that line further, you'll see that we get down to that 1,000 case not count that, that Dr. Williams was discussing. We get down to that level uh, in early June. Uh, so if we do want to get cases down to 1,000 before uh, reopening, then, um, uh, you know, early June looks like 
uh, you know, it, it'll 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 take that much it'll take that much time. Um, so what, you know, on the one hand, you know, the vaccine we have that this time around, which which is helping. On the other hand, we're dealing with this more transmissible variant, right? So so it's taking a bit longer to get the cases down than it was during the second wave. I, I think on account of of that fact, uh, it's the presence of variants which is really making this process a bit slower. Uh, but I do think that you know. I do think that early June is, is entirely achievable. I don't think that's too optimistic in terms of when we can, you know, get down to a thousand cases a day. Now, when we say lift the restrictions, what's what's that going to look like? Do you think uh, they're probably going to go back to, you know, something like a color coded system? And you know, I'm not really sure exactly what they'll plan, but I mean, it'll be something like that. So, so for example, uh, in some areas, you'll be able to do outdoor gatherings again. Um, they might reopen schools, so it'll look a little bit like. Um, what we had, uh, you know, for example, last fall uh, in between the first and the, the second lockdown, right? Um, and uh, and then as, as vaccination continues, they'll probably gradually lift that uh, until, you know, hopefully by, uh, by this fall, if we can get enough people vaccinated by that point, uh, you know, then hopefully we can go to something like the green zone in, in their colors, in their colors scheme, which was, uh, uh, you know, which was essentially that things are back to normal. So there's that element to it. And as you say, the vaccination program, although it's not the only factor, is still going to be a major factor here. Uh, what's what's your anticipation about that? We, we seem to be doing pretty well. The uptake, especially on this side of the border, is well. It's, it's unfortunate to hear the numbers in the States. I know they had a great start to this, and there's a lot more Americans than there are Canadians, and a lot more Americans have been vaccinated. But they almost seem to have reached their peak, and there's no way that we're, they're going to reach herd immunity. And the numbers that uh, we saw last week, Chris, indicate that we're probably not going to get herd immunity in this kind side of the country too simply because we're not getting that highest percentage of, 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 of the population that are vaccinated where does that leave us yeah so um yeah we're definitely doing a lot better and that's great to see i mean in the states there are discussions in some areas about paying people to get vaccinated and uh and you know you know for example we're doing pretty well compared to that in wellington county we're at 43 percent toronto's doing really well um so uh, in terms of reaching herd immunity i yeah, I think that might that might be difficult um, on account of uh, you know it, it, on account of um, the emergence of new variants. I, I anticipate what's going to happen is it might be something more like seasonal influenza. So COVID nineteen might be something that we have to immunize against. You know, probably not every year like we do for seasonal influenza, uh, but maybe every two or three years because it, it mutates a bit slower than influenza. And it, um, it's probably something we're not going to get rid of completely. Uh, but um, I think it will become a much less severe disease over time. Uh, and I don't anticipate that we're going to be locking down every year. I don't think that'll happen. But with, it, is, it is something that it looks like we'll have to live with. Um, it looks, uh, you know, if we can get enough people vaccinated around the whole world, then we could eliminate it. Uh, um, but given that we're having trouble reaching that herd immunity threshold through vaccination because you know, enough, there aren't enough people doing it, uh, and given that it does seem to evolve variants every once in a while, that means we may have to reformulate the vaccine. Uh, it's going to end up looking something more like seasonal influenza, I anticipate. But even if we don't get herd immunity, 
Uh, is there a possibility that enough of us are vaccinated uh, that we build up enough resistance to this, enough antibodies to this, that if we if we are stricken with the virus or it is around again, say maybe next fall or something like that, uh, it's it's going to be more like the flu. In other words, I mean, for people with existing pre-existing conditions, there's always going to be danger. We get that, as there is with the flu. But is it something that we, okay, I got COVID, I'm going to be off work for a couple of days, but I'm going to be okay? I think it's going to be more like that, and that's because even if uh, you don't have full protection against the variants, if you've got some previous history of infection or if you've got the vaccine for a different variant, it'll give you a lot of protection uh, against most serious outcomes for, for any new variants that might arise. So I, I think it's going to be exactly like that. Uh, there'll still be a serious infection, especially if you do have uh, some you know health risks that are associated with COVID. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll manage it more like we do manage influenza. You know, we don't shut down for influenza. Uh, we vaccinate against it, and, and, and we focus on trying to get as many people vaccinated as we can. And, you know, we're actually not doing a great job with respect to that. You know, loop vaccine coverage could be a lot better. Um, but it, it is the, the best weapon because, uh, uh, you know, no one wants to lock down to stop seasonal influenza. Uh, and COVID will be like that. You know, hopefully some of the mask use will stick. I'm hoping that... Uh, you know, people who are symptomatic will uh, wear masks to protect others around them. Uh, that's, you know, something that, that might change going forward. Um, but certainly, we, you know, we, I don't think we'll be doing lockdowns and mandatory mask use and uh, uh, against COVID, um, you know, uh, 22, you know, later this year and, and onward. The masking is an interesting uh, concept here. Dr. Fauci was uh, on, again, national TV yesterday, uh, and he suggested at that time, Chris, that wearing masks uh, may actually be a big part of our lives, not as if we're going to have to do it every time we go out, but there are going to be times uh, maybe, you know, hey, there's there's an outbreak and the numbers are growing. Well, we should wear masks for a couple of weeks. In other words, uh, it's always going to be there for us, uh, and, and which is not unusual, I guess. In other parts of the world, they do that on a pretty consistent basis anyway to try to stop uh, the spread of some of the viruses in those countries. Uh, do, you, do you foresee that? It's not necessarily going to be the new normal, but it is going to be another tool that we're going to have to use from time to time. Yeah, I think that's, I, I hope that's exactly what happens. And um, um, uh, and, and like you pointed out, this is normal in many countries already. Uh, if, if someone feels sick, they, they try to protect people around them and, and they stay home or they wear a mask. And, and, I, and I hope that's a positive uh, behavior that, that will pick up going forward um, because, it, it, you know, it, it seems that it, it, can, it can really help. Well, I mean, back in the days when I used to actually go to the radio station uh, in, in Hamilton in the West End there, there was an international school about a couple of blocks away, and I used to see the students going back and forth all the time. Uh, and, and most of them were wearing face masks. And this is long before COVID or anything else. It's just, you know, they're, they're in a different part of the world, I guess, and there's different germs and, and viruses and things like that. And they just, it seemed to be a matter of course. So, I mean, it, maybe it's just something we're going to have to adopt to. That's right, yeah. yeah. And I also said at the University of Waterloo, uh, where I work, uh, uh, many international students, uh, you know, routinely wear masks even before the pandemic. Uh, not routinely, but, but you know, it, it was common um, yeah. uh, if, uh, you know, for whatever reason, if, if they were having symptoms, for example. Uh, while I got you, I got to ask you about one of the other stories here because I'm, a lot of people are concerned about the vaccines themselves, and we all know about some of the concerns raised about AstraZeneca, and and you know we're being reassured, except by NASA. I don't know what they're thinking, but when they made their statement last week, but the story that we're starting to hear now is mixing and matching with vaccines, uh, which I'm told, uh, Chris, is not new. Apparently, they've done this uh, with other vaccinations uh, to deal with diphtheria and and other diseases that have been uh, rampant in different parts of the world, and they will give you 
two different doses. And there seems to be some evidence right now that that can actually make your resistance even stronger. Have you heard anything about that? Uh, so I haven't heard the studies that resist, that it makes resistance strong, but I'm not surprised. And uh, I think it's um, I, I think it's a good idea. Uh, it's, you know, I, it, it's certainly uh, safe um, based on experience with with those previous vaccines. And um, you know, they're doing studies to overseas to, to make sure that's to make sure that's the case. But based on the way the vaccines work, and uh, you know, I don't. Um, I don't see any reason why why that's that's uh, not going to work, um, and it, it, they should be able to mix and match basically with with impunity. Uh, and so, um, uh, you know, I hope to see that in, in in Canada and Ontario to deal with the you know the AS AstraZeneca vaccine shortages, for example. And that's going to be fascinating to see. There is a study that's going on in the UK. As a matter of fact, the story I saw this morning uh, from one of the British newspapers is they anticipate getting at least preliminary results to that study sometime in the next week or two. And that's going to be uh, good information to have. Do you see us, uh, you mentioned June, and and you think that the numbers and and the goals, that although Dr. Williams was kind of vague about the goals, that they're achievable, uh, that we might actually say, okay, we can start lifting things. I'm looking at what's happening in the UK right now. Hugging is legal again in the UK. Uh, pubs are open again right now in the UK. Do you foresee us having a summer of 2021 where that's going to be allowed? I think so. And it's interesting. Throughout the pandemic, the UK has always been, you know, two or three months ahead of us in terms of development. So you could almost just use that as, as an indicator and say yes. But also based on the conditions on, on the ground, I, I think that's very feasible. So like I mentioned a bit earlier, if you follow the current trajectory, We'll get down to a thousand by by June, and um, unlike previous pen, unlike previous waves, in the previous waves, whenever we reopened again, cases came back. The difference this time is that uh, we have the vaccine, which is providing some partial immunity. Uh, so, so that's the first fact. And the second fact is that we're entering the summer, and seasonal factors tend to suppress the transmission in the summer. So, I think because of both those effects, you know, as long as we can keep people getting uh, vaccinated. Then I think we we could have a summer where uh, where the restrictions are relatively uh, lax. Um, I couldn't tell you exactly where that would be, but you know, restaurants being open, I can I can totally see there's a possibility. Um, you know, uh, uh, being able to host people in your house if people are vaccinated, I think that's a possibility as well. Um, so um, so I'm fairly optimistic about where we're going to be this summer. Uh, well, it's going to be fascinating to see, and obviously we're going to get updates from uh, Queen's Park a little bit later on today. Chris, always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Take care. Chris Bach, of course, the research chair at uh, Waterloo University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting news as we were just having our discussion about when we are going to open again, and that seems to be up in the air right now in Ontario with the lockdown possibly being extended until June. But at some point, businesses are going to be allowed to open the doors, as they have been in other parts of the country. And, uh, well, you want to make sure that we don't have to close them again. So there's going to be some precautions taken and some extra tools added. And uh, to that end, uh, a good news story here, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce in partnership with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce in partnership with the Ontario and Canadian governments, uh, is launching a COVID-19 rapid screening initiative. This is a great idea uh, for small businesses and something that probably should have been done a long, long time ago. Mark Agnew is the Vice President of Policy for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Mark, thanks for joining us. Good to have you on the program today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me back again. 
This is a great idea. I mean, the bottom line here is we want to make sure that when the the stores finally open again and the doors open to small businesses right across the country, not just here in Ontario, uh, that they're going to be able to stay open. And, and this rapid testing, something that we talked about like a year and a half ago that we think was going to happen and it never really got off the ground to the extent we did. But but you guys have really stepped up here, Mark. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. We've had, uh, I think it's over 40 million test kits that were ordered and, uh, frankly, just sitting in warehouses and collecting dust, which I think was an absolute uh, tragedy to have mm-hmm. when there are businesses that could have used them on the front lines to stay open. And so what we're trying to do now is enable those to get right to the businesses that are going to be able to need them most and that will be able to use them to keep their doors open and uh, operate safely to make this the last lockdown. Well, and, and it makes all kinds of sense. And, and for the reason it was working, and we get that. So I know that, you know, as, as we look back on, on how governments responded to COVID, it goes all the way back to last March. And, uh, and yeah, there were some, some mistakes and some setbacks and things of this nature. Uh, but this is one that, that I really think, you know, should have happened. Uh, and, and like so many other situations, uh, it, the, you know, the private sector, or in this case, the Chamber of Commerce, has stepped up and said, look, it, we'll, we'll take the ball here and we'll run with this. Uh, and to suggest there isn't, there's a great need for this. I can, I can imagine your members jumping all over the place to try to get on board with this one, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our colleagues, uh, E. McLean uh, and Greg Grocery, that are in the, the Kitchener, Waterloo, and Cambridge area, I mean, they've been doing a fantastic job, uh, yeah. like, call with the sort of proof of concept, and they've had test kits sort of going like hotcakes out the door. And uh, thus far in Ontario, the most recent um, number was about 760,000 test kits that have been distributed so far through 28 chambers. And so I think this really demonstrates that we've been able to build quite quickly on the success of the pilot project. And I know you know, the folks that are listening today are from Ontario, but we're hoping that this will then be the springboard to go into other provinces as well across the country. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we talked to the guys from Cambridge about this, uh, which was the seed of the idea. And he, he was telling me then, and that was in the early days, he says, we can't keep up. Everybody's jumping on that. We need to do this. Because it's what this is, it's, it's obviously it's going to be reassuring to the businesses and to the employees within that business. But I would think also, Mark, to consumers to say, hey, this is a safe place. You know what? We've tested. Everything is fine here. Uh, come on in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you're talking about um, the desire of business owners to keep the doors open and keep a, you know their operations going safely, don't underestimate that. I mean, folks are, are hurting really on the front lines. And I think, you know, we've become almost sort of numb to saying that businesses are hurting, but these are people's livelihoods that they put out there, particularly for SMEs, and they're willing to do what it takes to be able to keep their doors open. Yeah, and and this is a cool uh, a cool tool actually to try to do that sort of thing, and and which is why I wasn't surprised at all when uh, the guys up in Cambridge and the Tri Cities up there were starting to use this, and so many businesses were jumping on board, uh, because what we're hearing time and time again from the economists, Mark, and I know you guys have seen all these studies. We've talked with uh, with Rocco and others at the Ontario Chamber about this. Uh, is that we consumers apparently have a lot of disposable income. It's just sitting in the bank because we haven't been able to go to work or go anywhere else. And we're going to want to spend it, uh, but we're going to want to have to feel safe in situations like this. So this makes all kinds of sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say it's not even just about um, people's desire to go out to a, a, a restaurant or a, some other kind of you know social gathering or, or sporting venue, um, but even just that kind of day-to-day being able to go into the office and knowing that the person you're talking to in the, the office kitchen or the water cooler is also not infectious and having that safe environment, I think, is key to getting people back in. And we've heard from tons of our members that the virtual format hasn't enabled the same kind of collaboration and connectivity within workplaces amongst employees that we were able to have before COVID. Because a lot of those 
as you know, it's that informal, we're just chatting around the water cooler, brainstorm, kicking ideas. That's how you build cohesion in a workplace. Mm -hmm. Well, and the places that have done this, and, and there are other jurisdictions that uh, that have moved in this direction a lot sooner than we have, uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, they've used these rapid tests, uh, and whether it's you know allowing people into a ballpark to go to a game, and maybe it's not full capacity, although if some jurisdictions are even doing that right now, uh, golf courses, golf tournaments, things of this nature, when they're letting spectators in, the rapid testing is, if not a prerequisite, it's a strong suggestion, and it gives that reassurance, I guess, uh, because if you're a, a little nervous and say, I really don't. I don't know if I want to go because I don't know if the person that's going to be sitting beside me uh, is going to be testing positive. Well, now you can know. No, everybody that's in here is okay. And, and, and that, I think, reassures an awful lot of people, which is probably what we need right now. Yeah, and I think if you take a rapid testing uh, regime combined with people that are either partially or fully vaccinated, I think that's actually going to really help the Canadian population have that confidence that when they go into places, either A, they're not infecting other people, and B, they're not being infected by others. <laughs> Is there, in, in your mind, I mean, you guys have done the research on this, Mark, is there a, a feeling right now that with this program that, that the Chamber is initiating and, and really pushing, uh, that maybe we can accelerate this this reopening that we're talking about? And, and uh, as you heard, of course, you know, it sounds as if it's going to be pushed back to the first week of June here in Ontario. But we've seen what's happened in the U.K. right now. The, you know, the, the pubs are open. You can dine in restaurants there. Uh, it's not quite business as usual, but it's pretty darn close to it. And a lot of jurisdictions in the States have done the, the very same thing. And it seems to be working. Is, is, is this one of these things that may push us over the top and say, yeah, I think we can do that here? Yeah, absolutely. And as I said, I think this combined with vaccinations will be able to, to do that. And one of the things that we want to see is this being the last broad-based lockdown. And instead, if an outbreak does happen, make it targeted just in the areas where it, where it is needed to allow the people to clean up, get their act together, and then be able to reopen quickly. And so this is also just about making sure that um, any future measures are done in a much more selective manner rather than the, the sweeping measures right now, where even if there have been companies doing the right thing, they've still been um, hit with the, uh, the lockdown measures. Now, how's this program going to work? So, um, functionally speaking, um, the test kits are being held either by the federal or provincial governments. They're then being given to the local chambers, and then businesses in those communities will be able to go to their chambers to be able to pick up the test kits and use them in their workplace. Um, there is a, a reporting that companies need to do back up the chain about, uh, you know, number of positive cases that were, you know, screened out and number of test kits used just so that we kind of know how the program is rolling out. But we're trying to make this as simple and cost-effective as possible for small and medium-sized businesses. And, and these results, obviously, are going to be reported back, so I mean, we'll get a, get a pretty good indication. And, and, and you can be more proactive about something if there is a positive test about something that's going to happen. And I just wonder, you're going to have them. And I, I know the knock against the, the rapid tests always has been, well, they're not 100% reliable, but <laughs> nothing is in life. I mean, it's, it's still, I think, a, a great concept and a great idea. And uh, for those who've seen some of the, the, the video of the, of the other testing, this is not as intrusive as, uh, as the, uh, the other testing right now. It can be done quickly and right on site. Well, and even too with the rapid test, uh, you know, hardware, if I can call it that, it is constantly evolving. I mean, you referenced the UK a minute ago, and recently in the United Kingdom, they've actually approved a 20-second saliva rapid test there. Now, I, I don't know how far away that technology is from being approved in Canada, but you can see that even the rapid testing technology is improving. I think that will also enable more companies and more contacts to be able to use it. 
It's, it's interesting to see the way the technology has advanced and as we try to find a, a better way to deliver some of these things. Because that was one of the knocks against the, uh, the, the COVID testing initially, of course, because it was, you know, up, up your nose and it was not very pleasant for some people. And they just said, I don't think I even want to do that. So now you've got this. And I, I saw the stories about the, uh, the saliva testing as well, too, you know, quick and easy. Uh, and off you go into whatever it is that you wanted to do. So this, there's really no excuse not to do this right now. Have you heard from your members about this, Mark, about the uptake here? Are they excited? about this oh yeah i mean as I, I mean the early stats about over seven hundred thousand tests through 28 chambers i mean i think that just speaks quite readily to how much companies want to be able to roll this out and what's been quite important to make it cost effective for companies is allowing the self-administration at workplaces um, other provinces require you to have a nurse on site sometimes a medical professional has to physically administer the swab and small and medium-sized companies just can't afford to pay to have those medical staff on site. And so, thankfully, what Ontario has done quite rightly is make it so that people can self-administer the tests, which is fully within their ability to do so as a layperson. Well, yeah, and again, we heard that from the Cambridge uh, Chamber when we talked with them a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I think the phrase was, he says, if I can do this, anybody can, because he says, I'm not techie. Uh, and it's, it's quite simple quite simple to pick up on situations like that. So you don't need to have a, a medical degree or anything like that to do them. And it's pretty simple to read it as well. So I can understand why the uptake is, is as strong as it is on here. Uh, to that point, uh, is there enough product? Um, there's enough product for now. Uh, the federal government had ordered about 41 million test kits to go, and certainly we're encouraging them um, to keep that product flow coming because these kits also do have an expiry date, and so we don't want to see uh, any kits going to waste that have been ordered because every kit that's used is the potential to screen out uh, someone who may be infectious coming into a workplace um, environment. That's good news to, to know that that's going to be happening. Uh what do you anticipate here? I mean, you know, obviously we're heading into the summer season, and, and I know this has been a, a rough ride for small businesses uh, ever since the first lockdown last March. And, and, you know, we thought we were out of the woods, and now we're back into the woods, maybe even a little deeper than we were. Uh, is there a, a, an optimistic feeling right now, Mark, with some of your members that look at with this and with the vaccinations, uh, you know, that maybe we can have not just a patio season in some of these restaurants and maybe indoor dining. Uh, some of these small shops can reopen again and, and, and get the customers in again. Uh, I think a lot of people in their mind's eye right now are looking at July and August and say, we've got to be back to, to where we want to be by then. Well, I mean, I think there are certainly uh, reasons to be optimistic, as you said, with the rapid testing and the vaccinations. I think um, what there's perhaps a bit more of a mixed view about is around travel and, you know, the yeah. mobility piece. Um, we don't want to see uh, quarantine hotels uh, replicated on, you know, people that are crossing on the, the land border. And certainly what we want to see is what the plan is for eventually enabling uh, the safe travel restart when the, when the circumstances permit, because right now we don't really have a plan to be able to do that. And so for a lot of companies, uh, particularly those that rely on international business opportunities, that is a really big question mark uh, for their uh, business um, operations. The other element to this, too, of course, is what's going to happen with some of these uh, these mom and pop businesses in small towns, and and you know the the impact it's had on them, and uh, and you know if they can hang on in situations like this. I mean, you guys have done the analysis from day one on this, Mark. Uh, the governments have tried, especially some of these government programs, the federal government programs, uh, to try to assist some of these small businesses. They've had to pivot once in a while because you know they're getting some feedback from you, from the chambers of commerce, and and from small businesses themselves, and saying, look, this doesn't work properly. Uh, have they done enough to, to try to keep you guys above water until we can actually get back into a regular routine? Um, I think folks have been doing okay 
okay. I mean, I don't want to sort of give a, a blanket statement that everyone's doing fine. So there unfortunately have been companies um, that have fallen between the cracks, but certainly the wage subsidy has been a, a big uh, help for uh, a lot of businesses getting through this. What we're just quite keen to make sure is that um, these programs are wound down in such a way that both manages public finances, but also doesn't leave companies high and dry that will still be constrained by public health orders. Because um, for these companies, the, the, the down turn that they're going through isn't through any fault of their own, but it's them doing what public health has, has told them to do. And for tourism, it's not just about, you know, the the airlines, it's about the hotels, it's about the, the shops, it's about the restaurants, it's about the people that are running, you know, uh, recreational activities that tourists do. And so there's a lot of different businesses that are going to be hurting for some time, and we want to make sure that the support programs um, aren't wound down too quickly, that those folks are left hurting while public health measures are still in place. Well, it's all small stuff, but it all adds up, and, you know, what we might consider to be a small little event is a big deal in a small town, you know, this is, I mean, we're heading into the music festival season, we talked about that on the program yesterday, too, and those things, whether it's in Hamilton, London, Ottawa, Toronto, I mean, they're all over the place these days. Uh, there were a huge, uh, you know, economic boost to the city, and, uh, and that's exactly what we're going to need. The, we want, I guess, I guess, Mark, slow and steady to make sure that we're back on this solid ground when businesses reopen again. But uh, a little shot of adrenaline every now and then with some of these programs wouldn't be a bad idea either, so we can get those off the ground. Yeah, and even, too, with the public health measures, um, you know, let's just say, for example, it is in the first week of June that we, quote, exit lockdown. Um, it's not exit lockdown and go back to the world as it existed in February 2020. Um, it's just starting on the path, kind of back up the, the ladder of, uh, of measures towards some semblance of normalcy. I mean, there's still going to be restrictions on, you know, large gatherings, for instance. Yeah. Um, and we don't really have any guidance yet either on what vaccinated Canadians can and can't do. And that's something that we've been asking the government to produce as well. So it's going to be a long journey still uh, moving, uh, moving ahead on this one, unfortunately. Well, uh, we're hoping there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and, and the program that the chamber has uh, has jumped onto here, I think, is a big, big part of that uh, to uh, gain consumer confidence, and I guess confidence with the the small businesses as well. Mark, uh, congratulations on the initiative. Uh, best of luck with it. We'll be tracking this as I know you guys will, and we'll stay in touch. Thanks for this today, though. Look forward to speaking to you again soon. Take care. Mark Agnew, of course, Vice President of Policy for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. And if you are a small business person, look into this with your local Chamber of Commerce uh, because it's a great idea and a great program uh, to make sure that, first of all, your staff are going to be safe and certainly uh, customers coming into the store are going to feel safe. And and as Mark and I talked about, this probably going to be some some hangovers, some leftover things. I mean, masking may not go away right away, probably won't go away right away. Uh, but with that, that's just uh, one more thing that we may have to do for a little while. If you're going to be indoors in a small store, they may ask you to do something like that. But as long as the stores are open and we're spending money again, uh, that's that's really what we're shooting for here. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It just seems to get worse and worse when we talk about the conditions of long-term care facilities here in the uh, province of Ontario, exacerbated, of course, by the pandemic and some of the stories that we've heard. And uh, there have been a number of reports that have been done, uh, the latest of which, of course, is the three-member commission that was uh, led by retired Associate Chief Justice uh, Frank Morocco, uh, criticizing the Ontario government's response to the pandemic, saying in the uh, report released on April 30th uh, that the government was slow, uncoordinated, and lacking in urgency. Uh, that's just directed at the government. Uh, there's some culpability to go all the way around here with a number of different people involved in the facilities. And we've heard about a number of people, 26 was one number that was mentioned, uh, that did not die from COVID in long-term care facilities. They died, according to the uh, medical reports, from dehydration and from uncaring 
staff, uh, and it's it's a, a heck of an accusation. Some suggest it might even be illegal. Uh, we don't know if it's going to be explored or not. This is not a new topic, of course. We've been talking about this. The province has been talking about this. The families of the residents have been talking about this. The staff have been talking about this. And uh, long-term care advocate Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos is uh, basically getting upset about this, too. She's talking about the horrific report from last week and the implications. Staffing is at an all-time low in long-term care right now. And she yet conveniently doesn't mention that or doesn't talk about how just because vaccinations have reduced the mortality, and thank God vaccinations work, it did nothing to improve on the negligence and the systemic flaws in this system. Nothing. Those remain. These residents are still confined for the most part. Still, many of them can't even go outside to this day. Their family are getting confusing directives that homes are making up on their own to this day because there's no accountability, there's no transparency, and she lets them do this. (laughs) There's just... No oversight. I don't know what she is doing other than just focusing on building, building, building new facilities while forgetting that you can build a thousand new fancy facilities, but they're just going to have the same problems reoccurring in new facilities because you're not addressing the root causes. Uh, she, of course, is referring to the, the Minister of Long-Term Care, Mr. Fullerton, uh, who uh, has been in some ways trying to defend this. But uh, I think there's also a realization uh, within government, certainly, uh, that uh, that something needs to be done about this. I mean, you've got basically three reports uh, that paint a pretty bleak picture as to what's going on. So what does happen going forward here? And what are the implications of, uh, of the reports? and the, uh, the rather dire warnings that, uh, that come with them. Joining us to talk about all of this is uh, Dr. James Thiessen. Dr. Thiessen is the Director of Health Administration and Community Care Program and an Associate Professor with Ryerson University. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us again today. Thank you. Good morning, Bill. Good to have you with me. The, uh, the evidence continues to mount here, Doctor. Uh, I, I guess what I'm looking for, and maybe what a lot of people are looking for, is to somebody just stand up at the podium and say, you know what, enough is enough. We've got to fix this system. And, and I know the Premier has made statements like that in the past, but when we see reports like this, it's got to be awfully frustrating uh, for the advocates, for the families, and, and for the staff, and frankly, for some of the owners as well. Well, absolutely. This, this, um, the most recent report that you're talking to about the horrible um, treatment and the dehydration and deaths associated with possible um, neglect of care um, just magnify um, the the problems that we were aware of last year um, and more details on the from those military reports that just show that um, you know there weren't enough staff um, residents were neglected um, I think that the I'm not dismissing this. This was it was horrible, but I think we I agree we do have to move on and um, hold people accountable, but um, fix the system, and it mostly needs more money. Well, that's always the beginning of the of the solution, isn't it? I mean. Um, I, I, all the accusations, and you and I have talked about a number of these over the last mm-hmm. couple of months, Doctor. But mm-hmm. uh, you know the the verse, you know the privately run versus publicly run facilities, and and these guys that are for profit are just you know all they care about is their bottom line. And I know not all the operators are like that. Uh, there are some some people that are probably not capable of doing the job on both sides of this. And and mm-hmm. it, the problem is, is the residents are the ones who suffer. The staffing problem is is probably the number one issue uh, that has long been happening in in these facilities long before COVID, uh, and it's only become worse as a result of what's going on in the workload that's on there. And I think that's really one of the things that the, the report from the uh, the Canadian military seemed to underscore. Yeah, um, they really added more, I guess, awful details and color to the um, reports that they released last year. 
And the the interesting point they're making is that there were, of course, deaths attributable to COVID, which is horrible on its own. But they're saying, you know, no, um, COVID was was only part of the um, issue, though COVID, of course, created the situation and the extreme short staff situations that um, the homes were faced with and that the residents had to suffer under. But um, certainly, yeah, there. It's it's a it's a real good uh, um, examination of what really what went wrong in the past, and hopefully it's a signal that we just can't let this happen again. Why can't we just develop a model, though? As as you said, it's going to take some money. We understand that, and I think mm-hmm. the government understands that too. Uh, but uh, anybody that's ever served in government at any level can tell you that okay, you don't want to spend money because taxpayers always want to keep their taxes low. But there are some things that you say this is what we're spending it on, and they're going to say, oh, okay, well that's that's legitimate. And I think that falls into this realm right now, doesn't it? I agree completely. the The last year has just been a nightmare, um, exposing what's going wrong and has gone wrong in the long term care sector. And as we've discussed before, anyone who's had loved ones in that. Um, situation or in those residences see just how how they struggle to provide proper care. So um, as, as I've said before, I think it really means um, we just need we need more money, but that money has to be directed to the long-term care sector. Um, people don't like paying taxes, but uh, people do recognize you need taxes to deliver services. And if there were taxes or uh, long-term care insurance um, public fund that was directing resources to that sector, I think people would be willing to step up and say, you know, um, this, this is where it should go. The um, doctors and um, hospitals, they are obviously vital to our healthcare system, but they consume an enormous amount of money compared to long-term care. So I think you really have to earmark some money for the long-term care sector. And we kind of thought that was going to happen when, when the Ford government was elected, of course, and they actually, uh, you know, mm-hmm. com- there's a ministry of long-term care, and okay, that's just, that's a good first step. Uh, but we don't see the resources being allocated to, at least not yet, anyway. And that's I think has to be part of the discussion. And, and let's focus on, on one of the things you did talk about there, Doctor. But uh, with that that allocation of money, staffing's got to be number one. Uh, s- salaries is a big part of this. I mean, there are people that are leaving. I know that the government's got a program to train new people, but there are people going out the back door saying, I just can't do this anymore. Uh, that's got to stop as well. But th- and working conditions and salary are key two elements, not just in long-term care, but just about any offer of employment, are they not? Yeah, um, it, it's clear. You just, you're, you're, abs- you, you're right. You train people, pay them hopefully a bit more money, and they'll stick around, offer them um, career opportunities. Which Morocco's report, the Commission report, does say that this has to be um, the sector has to be developed as a destination. Um, it has to be valued as a good place to work. You know, people that are personal support workers, um, they really like their jobs. The ones that are in in that uh, in those roles really can see that they're really helping people live as good a life as possible, and. I think that we can keep them if we offer them some more money because it, it is great work for people that really want to give back. 
Let's talk about sharing the cost then. In a situation like that, and, and we do have a hybrid system here, I, and I know there are many calls, and you've heard them certainly, Doctor, saying that the whole thing should go public and that's enough of this because these private guys don't know what they're doing and they don't have the heart for this, etc., etc. I, I, I can't see that happening. I'd be very surprised if that happened, uh, in Ontario especially. So we have to make the system that we have work possibly and even much better than it is right now. But that's going to require uh, not just funding, but there's got to be some regulations that, that everyone needs to adhere to. There's got to be some oversight of these situations. Uh, we've, we've dropped the ball on an awful lot of these things. And when the government gets sloppy about that, you know, and there's an open space, it's, it's not unusual for maybe the operators to cut some corners here and then too. And, and you've got to nip that in the bud. I think it's gone too far but it is salvageable, I think. I think so. I think the commission uh, report, without really defining what they mean by, um, you know, mission-oriented um, operators, you know, people that really want to deliver care as opposed to profit-driven um, operators, um, they've identified an interesting possible solution where they say, hey, the um, we need capital, we need money in the sector, so the private sector can help build these facilities or at least finance them but um, you just need operators that really care about delivering good care. There might be a, um, a real opening for not-for-profits to off- offer services and not run these facilities, not only you know their own site, but maybe uh, run more of the facilities that are financed by the private sector. So there might be a blended model, which we're not sure what it looks like, but the report suggests there's, there's a, a middle way. Well, and that's happened. I mean, governments have had to be creative about money. They just don't want to go to the taxpayer all the time. And there have what we call three Ps, private-public partnerships, mm-hmm. uh, where the private sector will get involved, maybe with capital costs and something of this nature. And, and as you say, uh, upon completion, somebody else actually manages it and runs the facility mm-hmm. uh, within those standards. I mean, you know, we the Jervinsky Hospital in Hamilton, the, the huge addition to that was done some years ago, was actually built on that premise. It's working pretty well, uh, but we need to have that sort of innovation with this as well but it's only going to happen if we get everybody around the table isn't it yeah i there's i think though we've got a a time or chance an opportunity to make this happen everyone knows this is a problem and uh, folks like you are keeping this discussion going um even though we're moving towards you know more more or less herd immunity but i think that this is an opportunity to as you suggest get around the table and say we've got to move forward we've got to make it better and we've got to find some operators that are going to run these places that um, really, really care about the resident experience and keeping them safe. And there are organizations that can do that, and there are private organizations that really want to do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, they just need they need the opportunity, but they're going to need to pay their people well again and um, offer them a, um, viable careers. This sector is growing every year, so it's a huge um, economic um, opportunity for organizations to not only um, employ people and make some money, but also deliver better care. Well, we're getting older as a population. We're aging, and we're going to need more of these facilities. And uh, even even if you don't understand the short term, you know, be selfish about it and say you want this cleaned up by the time you may have to go into one of those facilities. But it should happen now. Uh, and, and like you say, it's not as if we we are devoid of of solutions or ideas here. There's a lot that's out there right now. And and I don't want to paint everybody with one brush too. That's you know, I I know I know some pe- people, doctor, that work in the private facilities, and and they're caring, and they really want to do the best for the for the residents in those facilities, uh, but they're overwhelmed. The workload is just too much. Uh, you know, instead of you know one one 
as you say, PSW for maybe six or seven people. It's it's one for thirty five. Well, you can't answer the call bell at twenty, at, at, you know, with twenty different people at once, and and at, that's that's not their problem. That's the management's problem. There's got to be, uh, you know, ratios that have to be determined to, to make this stuff. It's going to be safe for everybody, and they have to be adhered to. Yeah, and they they have to be followed now. The sector, I know that there's been a lot of talk about there being insufficient um, inspections because they switched to, um, government switched to kind of following up on complaints rather than scheduled uh, routine full inspections. But if you think about it, there are about 625 long-term care homes in the province, mm-hmm. and there were 150 um, inspectors, or, and they said there were 40, 50 short. To me, that sounds like a reasonable ratio of inspectors, right, if you think about it. So there's, you know, each each inspector. Obviously, you take more than one to do a home, but um, you know, three three or four homes per inspector. That ratio sounds uh, manageable. So I think it's more than um, just inspection. Um, it, it, there, it, the, the easy, the easy, the best way, most efficient way is just to have the right people running these organizations. Yeah, and, and with the best of intentions, but uh, the inspections have to be done on a regular basis. I, I'm a little reticent to, to, you know, give a thumbs up to, you know, I'll buy a complaint basis. Uh, a lot of people don't want to complain, and we, you've heard those stories too, Doctor. Yeah. You know, yeah. if I complain, uh, you know, <laughs> they're not going to look after my mom. I mean, they, you know, that's all there's going to be to it, so I better keep my mouth shut. So it, there have to be, as I said, I think with one of our previous conversations, it's like restaurant inspections in Ontario. You know, it's, it's not on a complaint basis. These on a regular basis. Okay, are you following the rules? Uh, and, and if not, okay, you know, they don't necessarily shut them down. That rarely happens. But they say you've got to fix that. You've got to do this too. And there's got to be a, you know, a window of opportunity for them to do that. I mean, it, it's not as if you need to be draconian about that. But there has to be, I, I think, more oversight about this, especially in light of some of these stories we hear. You know, if, if, if there are residents and there seems to be evidence now that some of these people died of dehydration because they couldn't get a drink of water or they were, you know, singing to their own feces for hours at a time, uh, there's, there's no excuse for that, and there's no justification for that. That has to be addressed, and and that, that's right off the bat, and that comes down, as you mentioned, to staffing and standards. Yeah. Now, there's no excuse, and, there's, and I'm not giving, I'm not saying that we should cancel the inspections, but I'm just saying that that's probably not sufficient, um, and and uh, and arguably they were trying to catch up because they'd accumulated so many complaints. However, but um, yeah, there's no excuse for the nightmarish um, situations that these uh, reports are um, describing. Um, yeah, it, it, they were just caught flat-footed and really didn't know what to do. And I, the people, I really feel sorry. Obviously, the families and the, the residents who died or who had to survive were in, in those horrible situations. Can you imagine those um, personal support workers that nonetheless went in and did their best to try to keep things going? despite being so short-staffed and challenged and under the threat of catching the illness. Well, and, and that's why we talked about it as healthcare heroes, and the PSWs have to be included in that as well. Uh, it's an overwhelming responsibility. And and, uh, and as much as, as we've talked about this in, under the guise of the pandemic and COVID and the, and the horrific number of people that have actually died because of COVID in these facilities, uh, this stuff was going on before that. And, and even when we do get COVID under control, hopefully that's going to be sooner than later. Uh, and there is some sense of herd immunity, and the vaccinations continue. That's great, but there are still concerns about living conditions and staffing levels and and you i don't want to just say well the problem's gone away now because covid seems to be subsiding that's that's a big problem but it's not the only problem with these facilities no we 
as, as we said, the problems were apparent to anyone who was familiar with them prior to the pandemic. The pandemic exposed the horrible vulnerability and just pushed it off a cliff um, in many of these places. So, yeah, um, we have to keep this conversation going. And to your earlier point about having self-interest in it, yeah, we're all getting older. That's, I was speaking to my students in the program, the master's program, and they're focused on community care. So, yeah, um, I and my colleagues have a self-interest in making sure there's good leadership in that sector and that it's doing what it's supposed to do, using money efficiently, but uh, more importantly, delivering the best lives to our seniors as is possible. Absolutely. Well, we will keep the story alive, and I know you will too, uh, Doctor, with the great work that you and the folks are doing over there at Ryerson as well. Thanks so much for this. Uh, we'll uh, stay in touch and stay healthy. You too, and thank you for your advocacy and, and keeping this in the um, spotlight because this is our chance. You bet it is. Thanks again, Doctor. Dr. James Teeson, of course, from Ryerson University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.